This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Teacher mindsets is a buzz term in education, but what does it mean to have the right or wrong mindset in class? And what effect does that have on kids? Our teachers bring their own mindsets to that conversation. Plus, some schools in Kentucky are offering Bible study classes. That leads us into a conversation about the role of religion in public education. Get your constitutions ready. Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Maria Kennedy. Hey. Welcome welcome back. What do you teach? I teach AP U.S. History. Good to have you back on the show. David Muhammad, I would ask you what you teach, but you have recently changed Mm -hmm. your job. And so maybe if you briefly explain what you used to teach and what your new job is. Yeah, I used to teach um, high school social studies. So I taught international relations, economics, U.S. history. Um, And now I work for an education nonprofit that's trying to partner with schools to fix the the many issues within the education sector. And so this is a relatively new change. Yeah, about a week. So congratulations on your new job. Thank you. Does it feel weird to be out of the classroom? Not yet. I (laughs) I think by August... It'll feel odd not going back. Well, glad that you could join us. And joining us by phone from Chicago, back on the pod, Kevin Vanderporten. What do you teach? I teach U.S. history to uh, 10th graders at uh, Chicago Public School in the Northwest Side. So we got a couple of history teachers here, high school history teachers plus David. Maria and David are both teachers in the Kansas City area, and as I said, Kevin is in Chicago. Thank you to all three of you for joining on what are the first weeks of summer. The term teacher mindsets has been a buzzy term in education for a while now. It's maybe a bit vague and euphemistic, but teacher mindsets, that is the attitudes and beliefs teachers have about their students and their work, has been shown in a growing body of research to have a major impact on student achievement. It's the end of the school year, often a time where things slow down and the hectic grind of the school year fades into what can be a more relaxed beat of summer, depending on what your job and role is over the summer. And teachers can reflect a bit more. So we wanted to take a segment here to have our teachers reflect about their mindsets, their own past and present, and see what it is about teacher mindsets that can be so influential on students in school. So first, it may just be instructive to define for you what teacher mindsets are. What does that term mean to you? What do you think of when you hear that term? Yeah, I agree. When I think about mindsets, I think about what is your approach to the work that you are doing and what is the approach to the people that you are doing that work with. Uh, I think it's also really helpful to think about mindsets in terms of the filters that you apply in when you're interpreting data or stimuli in the world. So, you know, if something happens, uh, how are you going to respond to it? And how you respond to it has a lot to do with your mindset and your approach to it. Yeah, I mean... Our job is human-centered, you know, and so I think that every teacher comes into the classroom with a background of how they have previously engaged with humans. And so that creates biases, you know, and and certain habits of of thought process that is going to affect how you react 
to those bad days. Now, interesting. Can you give examples, uh, any of you, give examples of good and bad teacher mindsets either that you yourself have had um, and maybe developed out of or evolved more or colleagues have had that have directly impacted students and student achievement? I think each teacher, or at least in my school, every teacher refers to like a period that they is particularly challenging for them. It's like, oh, man, my seventh period is about to come in. For me this year, my seventh period is my difficult one. I have six period off for lunch, so it's kind of like the calm before the storm. But unfortunately, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I know this is not going to work today, this lesson. You know, and as the year goes goes along, you know, you're facing a lot more apathy from students. So it can be difficult, honestly, like as a teacher to, you know, get motivated as, you know, we get more into May and we still have a couple weeks left, actually. It's a difficult mindset to break, to be honest with you. But then, I mean, at the same time, you know, when you have your good classes coming in, my earlier class today, you're actually very excited to introduce the material. But, again, it can be hard to break away from that, oh, this is my challenging class right now. I know this is going to fail epically. And, Kevin, you, I mean, you say you see a direct through line between um, having a positive attitude about a single class. You look at it as... Um, this is my good group, this is my excited group, or this is my bad group, this is a group that I always struggle with, and you see a direct through line between like who you are as a teacher in those classes. Uh, 100%. Uh, the nonprofit Future Ed released a report recently that profiled several schools' attempts at actually changing teacher mindsets. Um, that report says in part, and I'll quote here, like the students they teach, teachers' attitudes, beliefs, and practices are shaped by the education systems in which they work and by the larger society, end quote. That report goes on to then, quote, a researcher from the Motivate Lab at the University of Virginia, which studies how teacher mindsets impact student achievement. This researcher's name is Chris Huleman, and he says, we can just blame teachers for their beliefs and not realize that they are working in this complex system that has social norms and policies in place that can make it hard for them to break out of where they are maybe alluding a little bit, Kevin, to what you're talking about. Um, do, all three of you, do your schools do explicit work on trying to alter or change teacher mindsets? Is this a term that you and your colleagues and administrators use together when you're actually training and, and doing professional development? Do you think about your teacher mindsets? Yes, all the time. Uh, at the school that I work at, we actually hire based on mindsets, not skill. So the mindset that we have as employers is we care more about your heart and your approach to the work and your mindsets about our kids. Like, do you see this as justice work? And if you see this as justice work and you are willing to learn how to be a good teacher and develop those skills, we will teach you those things. So not to break in here, but you, yeah. you, like you ask those questions during the interview process. Oh, absolutely. You, you are assessing for those mindsets while, while you're interviewing someone. Yeah, absolutely. And I, in my dual role as both a teacher and a coach, I actually do participate in the hiring process. And we, all of us, all coaches, all principals, all people who are involved in the hiring process are constantly screening for mindsets and constantly pushing and probing mindsets. And we're looking for two things. One, what actually is the mindset? And then two, how do you respond when your mindset is challenged? Um, are you somebody who gets really defensive and tries to, you know, qualify or modify or place blame or displace blame? Or are you somebody who really accepts that feedback or accepts the invitation to engage in a conversation about mindsets and, and show resilience in that? So what do you think trying to control for mindsets in the interview process? What, what's the result of that? What does that lead to once a person is hired at your school? Do you yeah. Think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, like, control mindsets necessarily. Or look for mindsets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, like, filter, yeah. right? So, like, if somebody says – if somebody were to come in in the hiring process and say, 
I don't know, blah, 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 like those kids. Like that's a huge red flag for us because that's not how we talk about our students, our families, and our community. Um, or if somebody was to say, oh, yeah, you know, like I know that I probably should, blah, 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 but I'm just not going to. That's actually another opportunity for us. So I think in terms of what does it actually help us do, I think one, it's like very Jim Collins. I don't know if anybody knows Jim Collins' work, but uh, it's like getting the right people on the bus. David. I think teacher fatigue is very important when talking mm-hmm. about teacher mindset. Like, you can have the greatest ideas in the world. You can have all the the best vision plans. But teachers get burned out very quickly because they're pressed to work so hard. Um, and, and they might have the best of intentions. But... And they have the best of intentions, but they're human beings. And, t- and so, so are the students. And so if you, have a, if you have an environment where it's not realistic in the expectations of what is the put out, you're just pushing, 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 pushing. Something's going to break. There has to be... I think along with the conversation in teacher mindset is teacher health. Yeah. Like, are you giving adequate space for teachers to breathe and also give those kids space for to, to breathe and just be a human being for a while? You know, I know that there's this like there's these the desires to get these outcomes, you know, whether it be socially and emotionally or uh, academically. But you also have to have time to process. Um, and if you don't have any time to process and you're just trying to reach some, you know, North Star point, um, you're going to burn out. And I think that's why you see such, you know, quick teacher turnover. Are there, I mean, can teacher mindsets be changed? I, mean, I, I refer back to this, this report by Future Ed that actually laid out um, several, at least six school districts who did specific interventions around trying to change teacher mindsets. Um, a few of them, just briefly, um, Making home visits, um, having teachers go out and visit the homes of the families and students that are in their school, uh, challenging or dispelling negative assumptions that they might have about their students' families. Um, having kids take surveys about their teachers. One New York City school um, or a group of, of schools within New York City gave students 40-question surveys about their teachers. Um, some of the questions asking students to um, write down how often they saw teachers doing certain things like expressing high expectations for students or respecting a student's opinion and then giving that feedback back to the teachers um, so that they could see what their students' perceptions of them were. Are interventions like that, have you ever, A, done something like that, what I just mentioned, or B, do you think it would be helpful in actually changing a teacher's mindset about their kids? Can I, I'm sorry, I just want to touch on a couple things yeah. that Maria, one thing Maria mentioned, oh, sure, yeah. and one thing that David mentioned, this is just from the prior thing. Yeah. Um, so Maria was discussing how during the interview process, they look for positive teacher mindsets. Um, I have a concern about that in terms of, I see, so I'm 35 now. I've seen a lot of young teachers come into my school, mm-hmm. and I don't really think that you can weed out the positive teacher mindset in the interview process. It's really, I think, until that teacher is in a saddle in front of a classroom of 25 to 30 students mm-hmm. who maybe are not into the material that day, and as we mentioned, will challenge you, because a lot of the younger teachers have the more challenging classes. Hmm. So I just, I don't necessarily know if that's something, I mean, I, I think a lot, um, Rhea mentioned the way teachers or prospective candidates answer questions can lead on to that, but I don't know if you could see that in the interview process. Um, and then just one other quick thing that David mentioned. Um, he mentioned the term that sometimes young teachers or teachers view themselves as saviors. I've seen this as well, and these are the teachers that get burnt out. Facts. Um, these are teachers that are out for the profession within two to three years. A lot of them come from PFA um, and there is, you know, you hear this in movies a lot, a white savior idea. 
most of the teachers at my school, I'd say, are young white liberals, right? And I've seen a lot of them come in, and they want to change the world, and they get burnt out. I think it's sometimes, especially, again, at the end of the year, this is like a war of attrition. Like, uh, next year will be my eighth year at this school, you know, and I finally have some of the better classes, but my first years, it was challenging. Um, and I don't know if all professions are as much like a roller coaster as this gig is. I'm sure they are. I mean, this is really the only thing I've done is education, but there are days where you feel like you are on top of the world, and there's other days where, like, can I come back here tomorrow? Like, this is just because you know that there's going to be a student that might challenge you, and I know David mentioned, like, the importance of teacher health or mm-hmm. mental health and mindset. Um, but those are just some of the things I wanted to touch on. Yeah, I do want to get back to, to asking how possibly to change teacher mindsets, but, Maria, I do want to give you a chance to, to, to respond, or at least I want to ask have you ever found it where maybe someone impressed you in the interview process, but then once they got in the classroom, um, you could see that their mindsets maybe weren't where they said they were or where you you thought maybe they were? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's that's life. I mean, I, I would nobody I I would be interested in finding the school that has 100 <laughs> percent teacher retention rate over five years. Uh, I, I hope that that school exists. I haven't I don't know about it if it does. Uh yeah, I think, Kevin, you bring up a really good point about making sure that that's not the only thing that you're screening for in the interview process and also being aware that mindsets can change. I think, like, I'm going to go Absolutely. a little bit meta. I'm going to go a little bit meta here, but, like, Dweck's work on growth mindset, right? Like, growth mindset inherently means, like, you can grow, you can change, and things are not fixed. So when I say that we're screening for mindsets, what I'm not saying is that, like, oh, if there's, like, one little thing or one little flag, oh, you can't work at the school. But what it does mean is that it's something we pay so much attention to, and we pay and there are and there are certain things like if you have because I don't know Kevin your student population but mine is um, almost exclusively uh, children of color and children who qualify for free and reduced price lunch and kid, uh, adults come in with a lot of mindsets about our kids and our families and our communities and so we feel uh, what I would never want to do is put some a uh, put an adult in front of our kids who is not who has not done some of what I would call the baseline foundational work around identity, privilege, and justice. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to do that, especially if they are like overtly and openly hostile and have hostile mindsets towards kids. But what that doesn't mean is that your mindsets can't change because they absolutely can. And I'm not even just talking about negative mindsets. Like it, it depends on the situation. It depends on the day you are having, to your point, Kevin. Um, but what we're really interested in is like at your core – when push comes to shove, in the heat of the moment, what are your fundamental beliefs about kids, uh, about the people that you work with, and about the work that we do? No, I, the demographics are very similar. Like, as you said, like my school is about 80% Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think a lot of that you have to look for, I mean, maybe teachers' experience where they've come through, come from, have they, you know, taught children of color before? Um, you know, as you mentioned, your school uh, most receives, what is it, free and reduced lunch. Right. Um, because the kids, they can, they, can, they can sniff like you're inexperienced. They're like blood and sh- or sharks in blood. They really are. Um, and I feel like, as I mentioned, most of the teachers at my school are white. And you need to learn how to, like, interact with most of my students are Mexican-American. Um, you know, so it helps. I, I know a little bit of Spanish, but... It's different than growing up in, like, an all-white school or if you go to an all-African-American school. Um, and there are some teachers who just, they flat out, they can't cut it. They don't know how to interact with, you know, Hispanics, and those are the ones who end up leaving. Mm. 
have you found anything in your career, uh, all three of you, have you found anything in your career that um, has like very abruptly and quickly changed your mindsets about the students you serve? I, I go back and reference this future ed report that laid out you know, several different interventions that schools around the country have done to try to alter teacher mindsets, doing things like giving students surveys um, about their teachers that the teachers then see the feedback, doing home visits to students and their families. Um, one particular intervention that I found especially interesting was um, really training up teachers on how to give feedback to students of color because it is suggested that um, oftentimes students of color perceive critical feedback as a teacher being biased, as a teacher doubting their intelligence. And so uh, teachers, especially white teachers, need to know how to navigate that and give feedback appropriately so that it is successful and not just uh, tearing a student down. Any of these things or something else, can you think of times in your career where your mindsets have abruptly shifted because of something that you know your school did or there was some sort of intervention that allowed you to see your school and students in a different way? Um. I mean, I, I can only speak from my experience. You know, it, it wasn't professional development that did it. Um, it was like moments in the trenches that were really organic. You know, I, I think a couple of years mm. ago, I had um, an administrator who really empowered me to um, to be able to to speak up for, for students who were marginalized in our school. And so then I got to kind of be in some administrative um, opportunities, and that, that lens changed how I saw things because you see like the inner workings like oh wow this is bigger than what happens in just my classroom and I think a lot of teachers it's easy to become like on an island when you teach because your it's your classroom the door closes and that's really all you see or what you focus on and when the bell rings you're like whoo made it through that day right but when you start seeing like hey this kid like all the things that these kids deal with before they ever walk into the building right and 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 kind of like what was mentioned in that the, the article, like like home visits, like not, not every teacher can do that. But do you have an understanding about like what that kid's home life is like? So like you say in, giving an opportunity to to take on a little bit of leadership, see the building from a different perspective. Absolutely, yeah. and I, and it opened my eyes to the fact that I think as as teachers, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't have an understanding of the whole child. Like, I need to know that that child has one parent at home that works nights and they feed themselves. I need to know if this kid is going through divorce or, I mean, whatever that, that, that situation is that's going to affect the fact that if I call upon him kind of aggressively, this might affect him, you know, and then it blows up and we're like, well, what happened? He was such a great kid. You know, I don't know where that came from. It came from somewhere. And I think that's something that a lot of administrators have the the privilege to see, yeah. um, but we don't. It doesn't trickle down a lot of times to the classroom. Uh, Maria, Kevin, any uh, reflections on uh, a time in your career where your mindset um, changed abruptly or, or pretty noticeably because of something that happened, or, or an opportunity you were given, or some sort of professional development? Um, I, I would say for me, is early November 2016 with the election of Donald mm -hmm. Trump, um, yeah. teaching at a school. That's roughly 80% Hispanic. Um, you know, this was in my, let's see, fourth or fifth year of teaching. And for the most part, I always focused on, like, the history. History, I'm not throw current events in from time to time. But I really noticed in that school year, like, my mindset changed. Is like, I need to kind of, like, keep these kids, like, aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, now, I really mm -hmm. try to check my bias. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a liberal, but I don't want to, like, indoctrinate these kids and, like, 
you know, make them young Democrats. But I felt like that year, like, it was really my responsibility because it's like January, and it's like, here's the travel ban. Mm. We're not going to continue DACA. Mm. Um, but one of the things I really try to get these kids to realize is, like, I, like white, white people are not the future here. You are. Latinos are the future. Now, you keep seeing the 2035 or 2050, or 2050, it could be a majority Hispanic country. Um, so I really try to empower them. I'm like, you got to vote. Like, you know, mm-hmm. keep speaking Spanish, things like that. So it wasn't necessarily like uh, surveys or home visits, which I would like to do at some point. Um, but I don't know if that's realistic at my school. But we do have what are called grade-level meetings where all the freshman teachers meet together, sophomores, et cetera. And we do try to discuss, like, let's say a teacher has like a particularly good relationship with a kid, and then that teacher will then shed some light on, well, this is going on at home. You know, so then you are a little bit more aware of, oh, this is why this kid's sleeping in class, or this mm-hmm. is maybe why they're acting out. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, the election just completely changed how I view my profession. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say we're the vanguard of the resistance, but, I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just, it's changed everything. Yeah. Uh, Maria, why don't you wrap us up? You said you teach at a school that... Um, takes mindsets very seriously, um, talks about them all the time, reflects upon them. Can you think of a time in your career where your mindset changed? Yes and no. I have, I have two final thoughts, if I, if I get the wrap-up on it. Um, I, well, not if you have two. I mean, I oh, know. okay. Well, I'll make them good. I'll make them quick. I, off the top of my head, I'm sure, that there, I'm sure that there are moments that fit that bill. Off the top of my head, I can't think of one, but I, what I can think of is a moment just recently where a mindset that I had but was sort of in the back burner of my brain, wasn't like at the forefront, was really like was was brought to my forefront and and um, was affirmed for me in a very like very painful way. One of my students was one of the victims that was recently shot um, at the eSports venue over on 39th mm-hmm. and Main. So folks in Kansas City will know where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, the our Injured. Sh- our, yes. In- injured. Yes. Not killed. Yes, no, yeah. but he was shot twice mm-hmm. in his legs. Yeah. Um, and he's a track star. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just, it's been hard. Um, he's okay. He's okay. I visited him two or three times. Um, and I'm going to continue to visit him and make sure that he's, you know, taken care of and his family's taken care of. But the mindset that I had that was sort of put on the back burner was that my students are not, I knew that my students are not immune to the gun violence of Kansas City and the many other uh, issues that we have, um, you know, systemic poverty, racism, et cetera. But that was a moment that was like really scary for me uh, because we, I mean, I, you know, we almost lost him. And I, because of the success that my students have had and the school has had, academically and the places that our kids, our graduating seniors are going to college and and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was like, okay, like, you know, we're getting traction. We're moving in the right direction. This is great. I'm feeling really positively about it. And those things weren't necessarily in conflict, but like, that's what I was really focusing on. And then to have that happen to one of my kids just brought into stark relief. Yes, your kids are getting into all these great schools and yes, they're doing amazing things. And yes, they're studying abroad and yes, they're getting internships. But never forget uh, some of the very real risks that they are facing and that they are not immune to these issues that we talk about as a society. All 
Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, on to our next topic. What is the role, if any, of religion in public schools? I suspect many of our teachers would say very little or none at all. But according to the Washington Post, activists on the religious right are finding increasing success in getting red state legislatures to consider laws that encourage high schools to offer Bible study classes, not religious study classes, mind you, but classes narrowly focused on teachings from the Christian Bible. Such legislation was introduced in at least 10 state legislatures this past year. Georgia and Alabama did pass such measures. And in Kentucky, at least two school districts already have such classes up and running since that state passed a Bible study class law in 2017. For what it's worth, President Trump has also tweeted his support for increasing Bible study classes in public schools, and supporters of this move are bullish. As one prominent writer of Christian-themed textbooks told the Washington Post, quote, we are at a tipping point. Instead of having to find a reason to teach the Bible in public schools academically, you're going to have to find a reason not to do it. End quote. So religion in public schools is something, uh, frankly, we have not talked a lot about on this podcast. It rarely comes up. So that's why I was interested in broaching this subject. And we happen to have three social studies teachers or two social studies teachers and one former social studies international relations teacher. How do you see this movement to add Bible study courses to public school curricula? And then we'll get to the bigger questions about, you know, religion more broadly in schools. But just this, this, this news story, this news item right now. Okay, so yeah, in preparation for, sure. Okay, so in preparation for the podcast, um, some of the Washington Post articles were very helpful. I always thought that religion was flat out, like, not allowed in public schools. Mm, interesting. Um, but at my high school and I believe the high school I went to, there's like an after-school uh, Christian club. Um, and also, when it comes, and we are all social studies teachers here, when I've taught world history before, world studies, you know, when you talk about, like, the roots of ancient Christianity, we're focusing more just on, like, the history, mm-hmm. you know, of, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm not talking, I'm not a religious person at all. Like, it's really not actually my cup of tea. Um, but I, I respect students' uh, faith. Like, my, again, my high school is mostly uh, Mexican-American, Roman Catholic, um, but most actually are not very religious. Um, but I have no problem with after-school religious clubs or, I mean, if students want to pray in private, as I guess I learned that that is allowed. You know, it's just not about, you know, trying to brainwash or indoctrinate other kids. Um, yeah, but so I'm you, not crazy about yeah. there being classes offered, yeah. like a history of Christianity, you know, as an elective. I don't think that would fly, though, at, you know, a Chicago public school. Yeah, I would even say, I mean, Kevin, even like a a history of Christianity course is much different from the courses that were detailed in this Washington Post. I mean, these are Bible study classes. I mean, like very, very, I mean, at least how they are described and presented in the article appear to be like something you would you would go to uh, on Sunday, (laughs) like at Sunday school. Yeah, I I know I'm preaching to the choir here with my fellow social studies teachers um, on the panel. I so I teach U.S. history, but I also oversee the AP U.S. government and politics class at our school. I and if this is too much in the weeds, please like just rein me in, pull me out. But I think there's like a couple things going on here. 
So if we actually like ground ourselves in the Constitution itself, there's two sections of the First Amendment that deal with religion. The first is the free exercise clause. And, the, and it says like Congress and states, you know, shall make no law um, prohibiting the free exercise thereof, meaning of, of religion. But also, and this is the one that I think is actually more applicable here, is the establishment clause. And Congress shall make no law establishing a religion um, within, within like states. Within public bodies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's so much precedent on that issue. And there's multiple, you know, multiple cases already that have gone before the court that deal with school prayer. There are two in particular that if this goes to the Supreme Court, I will be very interested to see how they deal with it. The first is McCollum versus the Board you of Education. You brought the receipts today, didn't you? <laughs> I told you I was ready for this conversation. Um, but I think there's two, and I'll be brief. But I think the first one is McCollum versus the Board of Education, which um, ruled in favor or, or like struck down this policy. And namely, there were schools in, I think it was Illinois, I'm pretty sure it was Illinois, uh, that were allowing religious classes and religious instruction. It was multi-faith, so there were some that were Roman Catholic, there were some that were Protestant, there were some that were Jewish, to be in uh, Illinois public schools. And that was struck down on the establishment on the grounds of the Establishment Clause. The second one that I think is even more, is also very applicable, is uh, Ingle v. Vitale, which is, I think, 1960s law in New York, they had a like interfaith prayer and it was a very it was not a Christian prayer. It was just like a very, I guess, like basic mm. or bland prayer, if you will, that students would say at the beginning of the school day. And the rule like was collectively. Yeah. And it was mm. like you didn't have to say the prayer, but this prayer was said at schools. That also was struck down under the establishment clause, saying even though this wasn't this was a non-denominational prayer, even though it wasn't specifically a Jewish prayer or a Christian prayer or a Buddhist prayer or whatever. That you cannot do that. Yeah. To me, yeah. sorry, but like to right. me, this is a clear violation of the establishment mm. clause. David, I was I was gonna, but I was gonna follow up, and maybe David, you want to answer this too. But is there any cover for this course in the fact that it's an elective? I mean, if kids want to take it, if they're voluntarily taking it, yeah. Uh, I mean, what's the harm? I think for me, I, I honestly have no problem if it's an elective. I, I think the only question I have is, are you going to allow? Like, this whole conversation is around the premise that, like, the only religion that is considered a religion in schools is Christianity. If I have a population of Muslim students, are we going to allow a Quran, Quranic, you know, uh, study class? You know, if you if you allow that, if, if enough students in the community say, hey, or enough families say we would like this in our schools as well, would they allow that or would there be pushback? Um, you know, I, I know there are schools, you know, that have allowed prayer space for Muslims and, and things of that nature. So as long as it's an elective and it's not being mandated, it doesn't bother me. It's when it's one, it's normalized that the only religion is Christianity or two, um, we're not going to allow other hmm. space for other religions to come in. Um, and that's been my big issue. So, you know, Trump's tweet and in and, and the state of Texas, it's all been based around the fact of, of Christianity. Um, and if you're going to allow religion into schools, as an elective, it has to be, I say, you have to look at the community that you're serving and say, well, what's the predominant religion of that yeah. community and are you servicing them? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think, fair point, I think it is actually made in the Washington Post story, too, that, I mean, the, the, the two school districts that this is occurring in Kentucky right now, again, it, it is only two, um, the surrounding counties are um, vastly self-identifying as Christian. Um, also, they have the Creation Museum. Yeah, right. I, mean, I, th- I think, in fact, one of the one of the jurisdictions is where the Creation Museum is, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I'm sorry. Did I cut you no, no, yeah, go ahead. I, I think, like, this is a touchy issue. Like, I, I am a 
practicing Muslim. Like, I, I am religious, you know, and for me, it is a big part of my identity, you know, and I've had conversations with students who, for, for them, religion is a big part of their identity. And so if you have a community where it is a big part of their identity, regardless of our liberal views or whatever, we have to respect the whole child, right? Like, we always talk about teaching the whole child. And so if that community, for them to function, feels like they need to have this religious consistency, I get that. But as long as it's not excluding the uh, people who might be in that community um, or coming into that community who don't necessarily believe that way. So don't put a cross, you know, on every school pamphlet or on the yearbook. Um, don't make the, the school mascot, you know, Jesus Christ. The like, crusader. <laughs> right. Don't have a Christmas party. But if you want to have an elective and an after school prayer group, totally cool. But if I stand up and say, hey. You know, on fr- I would like if on Fridays, maybe I could go over here and pray or whatever. You, you need to allow that because then that way it's inclusive. And at the same time, if a kid says, I don't want to pray at all, I, I don't want anything to do with that. You sh- they, they should have that space to do that as well. So this is the, the tension that Maria was bringing up between exercise and establishment, right? You're allowing students mm-hmm. to exercise the religious belief, right. but you're not establishing right. yes. a, a formal program that— right that all students are compelled to follow or participate in. Absolutely. Um, and Yeah, and I think if, if these classes are upheld, my guess is that that will be the distinction that the Supreme Court makes. And it's, and it's so interesting. Like, and you would think the Supreme Court would, would, would follow that. I know of Catholic schools. <laughs> yeah, currently. I know of Catholic court, schools yes. in this city that are more open <laughs> to differences of religion than some of these public schools in some of these states. In what mm-hmm. ways? What do you mean? Well, mm-hmm. like, and I, I, you know, I, I look at there's a there's a Jesuit Catholic school uh, in, in Kansas City here that's all girls, um, Scion, you know, and they've always, like, from their onset, they were one of the first Catholic schools that allowed Jewish students. They've got girls who wear the hijab, right? Like, if a child doesn't want to go to, um, and I don't know what they call it in Catholicism, where they start, like, the morning prayer. I'm not sure what that's called. Mass. It, Matt, yeah, there you go. Yeah. They, they don't have to. They can step out, right? Like, the students uh, learn about a variety of religions. They bring it, you know, like, so then it's like this space where, hey, this is what our foundation is, but we still are inclusive towards everyone else. And that's a school that, as a private school, they kind of have the right to do that. And then you have these public schools that are pushing more towards exclus- exclusivity when they're making it sound like they need to be included, but by being included, they're trying to exclude. Uh, Kevin, it sounded like you, you might have had a point earlier. Did I cut you off? Kevin, you brought up earlier that you had you you know in preparation for this segment, you actually started to, to read up on some things and 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 found yourself surprised to to learn about what was permissible. Um, I do kind of want to run over that in case our audience is is uh, also um, confused about what may be permissible. But take it back to President Bill Clinton. He issued a memo one time during his presidency in the 1990s, um, actually defending some forms of religious expression in school. In it, he rather famously wrote, nothing in our First Amendment converts our public schools into religion-free zones, end quote. And that is when it comes to private religious expression, I should say. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that schools are prohibited from sponsoring religious activities. That's what we've been talking about. But religion classes can be taught as long as they stop short of proselytizing, which um, these courses that were the subject of the Washington Post article in Kentucky may be crossing that line. Mm-hmm. Religious groups um, can meet on school grounds. Uh, Maria and David, you said that that's happened at your schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kevin, you said so as well. Students can privately pray at school. Sacred music can be performed in many instances. Um, 
do you think as teachers, were you aware kind of the uh, of the parameters of, of how religion can be involved in public schools? You're all three public school teachers. Um, do you think that you were up to speed on that? I mean, yes, because that's my job. Like it's I because I like oversee the U.S. government course in particular, like it's there are like certain required cases and required documents that you have to go through with that. So uh, would I say that I'm like, you know, a learned scholar of all these things? No. <laughs> but do I have like the basics and can I like have a conversation about them and am I mindful of them? Yes. Yeah. What I'm wondering though is, is are these, sorry, David. No, um, go ahead, go ahead. Are these, are these issues like David at your school, is this an issue, Maria? Because at my school, it's, it's really not. Yeah. I mean, Again, most of the students are Roman Catholic, maybe that's why, but we do have, you know, some Muslim students, I don't think there's any Jewish students, but maybe just because it's a homogenous population. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, a, that's a good question, Kevin. Not, yeah. do, does religious belief come up in your work? Like, do your students bring it up? Do they express a desire to have some sort of deeper connection to their religious faith at school? I mean, in, in my school experience, I feel like the kids have been more inclusive-minded and cool about it than we are, and like... When I taught World Regional Studies and we studied different religions, they were really intrigued and their parents were like excited that they were learning about different things. And then the kids who took it a little more serious as far as their own personal religion, they did that in their own private space. Um, I, I, what I think is interesting is that our, our public schools, the children seem to be more open minded about this stuff than our own government. Like you have a government right now and not to like get on like a soapbox, but like that has been since they're since their onset, this this particular one, you have high rates of anti-Semitism. You look at what's happening to Ilan Omar, right, um, and, and things of Repres- that nature. Yeah, U.S. representative. Yeah, like, they're, they themselves are not being inclusive, and, and they're not practicing what they preach. So it's hard for me when, when I hear these, like, government officials talking about, like, opening space for religion in schools. I'm like, yeah, you have any open space for a variety of religions in your own political background. So the kids themselves, I think it's, they're pretty chill about it, honestly. Yeah, I mean, in my that's school, a good that's yeah, go a good ahead, sign. I think no, just real quick. I mean, I think that's a really good sign then that the younger generation is going to be more tolerant and more open minded. Yeah, we hope. But the only, only issue is that the structures and the systems have to be that are in, like in control, right? Like the kids are dope, right? But like the systems that are in control and the structures that are in control are not, right? And so we have to hope that we can continue to make space for them to like infiltrate and empower that's their why you voices. Encourage the civic engagement. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, Maria, what were you going to say? Just quickly, yeah. no, 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 not no, no, at no. all. Uh, quickly, you asked, you know, is this a big deal at, at my school? No, kids, I think similar to you, Kevin, and similar to you, David, kids at my school are very open, very, I would even go beyond tolerant, like very accepting and warm with each mm-hmm. other and religious differences and religious preferences. We also as a school, I think like going back to like the establishment versus free exercise clause issues as a school, um, you know, we, we actually Eid Mubarak just occurred recently, the mm-hmm. end of Ramadan, right? Um, and we had we have many students at our school who identify as Muslim and who needed a place to pray during the school day uh, as as part of Ramadan, and also asked to opt out from lunch and from being in the cafeteria uh, because, as you may know, uh, Muslims during Ramadan fast, um, and so we were happy to accommodate them. And that was, you know, a non-issue at our school. And also is like one, protecting their free exercise of religion, but two, is not us endorsing Islam or establishing a religion at our school. That's rather us being accommodating to our students. I think the issue here, right, is that this is a state-sponsored or a publicly funded state-sponsored institution, a public school, that is offering an institutionalized class Mm -hmm. 
that is, to your point, Kyle, not learning about Christianity in in an objective sense or within the context of learning about multiple religions, but rather is a a Bible study with the explicit purpose of like deepening faith. Mm. That, that's tricky. That's tricky. Thanks for the discussion and thanks for for breaking new ground. We had not really talked about religion in schools on this podcast. Uh, Well, uh, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Voters in Los Angeles rejected a union-backed tax measure aimed at boosting funding for the L.A. Unified School District. The result is a rebuke for union and district leaders who accelerated their push for the proposal after teacher strikes in L.A. earlier this year highlighted issues of low pay and overcrowded classrooms. Measure EE, as it was known, would have hiked property taxes in order to raise an estimated $500 million for L.A. Unified over 12 years. First-year teachers are struggling to afford housing in nearly all major cities in America. A new analysis by USA Today shows that first-year teachers would spend more than 30 percent of their salaries on housing Mm. in nearly all of the 291 metro areas the newspaper looked at. In some cases, like San Francisco, San Jose, and Salt Lake City, median rents are more than 80 percent of average first-year teacher salaries. Many mid-career teachers are also working second jobs in order to make ends meet, including driving for Uber and teaching English language lessons online to students in China. And finally, I really debated whether I should put this one in there, but I just could not pass it up. There are so many juicy details. An award-winning Catholic school principal from near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, has resigned after being arrested at a strip club in Washington, D.C. while on a school field trip. According to the Advocate newspaper, Michael Camo was arrested at a gentleman's club at 2.30 in the morning, apparently while the students he was helping chaperone were back at a hotel. Camo had been principal at Holy Family Catholic School in Louisiana for five years. And previously, he had won the prestigious Milken Award, which recognizes educators who work with and find success with low-achieving students. So, double-edged sword there. Too bad. Those were some of the headlines that caught our eye this week. Coming up, kids these days, but first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard on this episode, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep that conversation going. Now, kids these days. David, you've been out of school for a couple of weeks, so maybe you don't. What were the kids into before you left? No, I got a kids these okay, days. Okay, okay, Um I mean, kids these days, I'm really proud of them. A group of students that I work with were very um, involved in the 30 Americans um, exhibit and um, helped out with the whole Juneteenth celebration around that and facilitating. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really, really proud just of Just for them. our listeners, can you just explain just a little bit about what that what Yeah, that 30 was? Americans was a exhibit that's uh, here in KC now at the Nelson Art Gallery that has 30 different pieces of artwork by African-American artists. And they took, um, they reached out to local um, artists, uh, myself included, and my wife, um, to create pieces of work around those pieces of work. So both me and my r- wife wrote poetry um, to go with different pieces, and it's being held at the Nelson Art Gallery. But um, Casey Race Project, which I'm a part of as well, um, picked different students from the schools that we work with um, to help facilitate discussions and uh, kind of chaperone the event yesterday for Juneteenth. So just really proud of these kids, seeing what they're doing. And thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Man of many talents, by the way, Mr. Muhammad. 
Maria, what are your kids into? Uh, my babies are going to college. Um, so we, my school just had its first 12th grade graduation uh, last week, last Thursday. Um, not yeah, not this past Thursday, but the week Thursday before that. And so, so, so very proud of them. Uh, shout out to them. 100% of them were accepted in four-year institutions. Over 5 million in scholarships. There's only 38 of them. They got into Yale, Princeton, uh, Brown, Emory, Davidson, Vandy, University of Chicago, Miami, Spelman, Morehouse, George Washington, USC. Like, I'm just so, 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 so proud of them and um, really, you know, um, I would say amazed, but like, I don't know. I knew they could do it all along. Just like very humbled to walk with them in that journey and cannot wait to see where they go. Yeah, congratulations, Maria. Yeah, Thank awesome. you. And Kevin in Chicago, what are your kids into? So this past Monday uh, marked the first real school day of Pride Month, um, and I was surprised like how many kids had like either stickers or buttons or flags. Now it wasn't just you know the the rainbow flag we're all familiar with, but I learned that there's a transgender flag. There's all sorts of different gender identity flags. They all look really cool to me, but um, you know, so now I have my rainbow flag on my desk and a coffee mug. Um, but the kids are really excited about that. I know the parade in Chicago is not for a couple of weeks, but we talked earlier about how, like, I, you know, I think this younger generation is much more tolerant and open-minded. I mean, I don't think this would have been like at my high school in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it was, it was nice. Also colorful. So. Well, Kevin, thanks for sharing that as well. Thanks to our teachers this week, Kevin Vanderporten in Chicago, David Muhammad and Maria Kennedy here in the Kansas City area. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>